From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Treatment for cancer has become a lot more tolerable for most patients, but radiation and chemotherapy still produce some unpleasant side effects. Those side effects can make weight loss and lack of an appetite a real problem for those battling a cancer diagnosis. In an effort to help cancer patients find meals they can stomach, the Cancer Nutrition Consortium was formed. We'll learn more about the consortium from two Mayo Clinic experts involved in the project. Also on the program, we'll hear how one man's personal story inspired him to work in spinal cord injury research. And we'll hear about the latest interventions available for treating stroke. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, treatments for cancer, as you well know, actually, Mm -hmm. things like radiation, chemotherapy can wreak havoc on patients. And it's not easy, you know, being treated for cancer. And I can actually attest to that fact. My wife, having just gone through treatment for uh, breast cancer, there were some tough times. The chemotherapy, the the radiation, none of it's easy. No. And you had both, too, didn't you? Common side effects of treatments can include nausea, vomiting, fatigue, and weight loss. And they can make getting proper nutrition difficult and challenging. In an effort to improve the lives of cancer patients, leading cancer centers in the United States, including the Mayo Clinic, have formed the Cancer Nutrition Consortium through research and collaboration with health, industry, and culinary experts. The Cancer Nutrition Consortium offers recipes and resources for those undergoing cancer treatment. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh and Terry McJoint, a Mayo Clinic operations administrator and a member of the Cancer Nutrition Consortium's Board of Directors. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Dr. Lindbergh, uh, Terry McJoint, so nice to have you with us. So proper nutrition for patients undergoing cancer treatment can certainly be a challenge. I can say that 29 years ago when I was diagnosed, this was not part of our discussion. So that must be something that we've learned over the years. Dr. Lindbergh? Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this important topic. I do think that it is something that we are paying more attention to these days. You know, as our cancer therapies hopefully have gotten better, they're more effective, they're hopefully more tolerable to our patients, then we can focus on some of these other um, equally important areas to try to improve not only their quality of life, but their overall health as well. So focusing on nutrition, making sure that people can be um, healthy while they're undergoing these necessary treatments is really the goal of all of the things that we do uh, in that nutrition space and also with activity, stress resilience, all those uh, different areas. Uh, what is it? What are the issues when you're undergoing either chemotherapy or radiation? What makes it difficult for a, a patient to eat? What I hear from my patients, Tom, is that even foods that they previously might have enjoyed are different during the time of chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So foods may not smell the same. Foods may not taste the same. Foods may not be um, appetizing like they were prior to this life-changing event and and the treatments that go along with it. So what we wanted to learn with Terry's help and with the wonderful organizations we had a chance to partner with is how can we actually ask the right questions for these patients who need a different approach to nutrition so that we can meet their needs in in a better way. It seems like that this has obviously been a problem ever since chemotherapy came on the scene some 
what's it been, 50 years ago? Probably pretty close to 50 years ago. But uh, I think in some ways the problem has gotten a little bit better because you're better able to control the, the nausea and the vomiting. I can remember uh, back in the early days when methotrexate was the treatment for kids with uh, osteosarcoma, bone cancer. They were in the hospital. They, were, they, they could never do this as an outpatient, and they vomited continuously. Extremely difficult problem. Still have the same problem, but not to the same scale, right? It, it's, in some ways, it's better. Yeah, I, I think definitely the drugs have changed, the tolerance and the effectiveness have changed. And again, back to now we can focus on these things that otherwise we, we maybe just didn't pay enough attention to in prior days. How important do you think good nutrition is to help in the patient actually fight the cancer? I think there are benefits to nutrition that we're only beginning to understand. And I think particularly in this population where not only are we trying to control or eliminate the cancer, but also make sure that people can maximize their ability to um, experience effective life-saving drugs, it, it just makes the, the issue so much more important. Which is the bigger culprit uh, in general, the chemotherapy or the radiation? I'm, I'm not sure that anybody would um, have uh, the same answer. From, from my standpoint, I would like to look at the person more holistically, so the disease process and the treatments, and how can we individualize the nutrition needs for that person. Well, what is it that you've learned that you need to change or address when it comes to cancer patients? What has the consortium figured out? So I, I'll, I'll let Terry add in uh, her comments as well, but I, I do think that understanding that um, People who are receiving chemotherapy, radiation therapy, cancer treatment have different needs than the general population. That That is something that maybe we just don't give enough recognition to. So how can we make sure that we've got the right texture, the right odor or, or, or lack of, uh, you know, so that somebody doesn't smell a food and, and not want to oh even eat gosh. it? You know, coffee is a, is a very powerful uh, has a very strong scent to it, and some people may like that. Some people might be totally turned off from that. So we want to make sure that we can individualize for that person um, whatever it is that they want, food and beverages that can help them maintain their nutrition status. I remember, um, for, well, for myself, it was a long time ago, but I remember the mouth sores being a huge problem. But probably a bigger problem for me was the list of foods that I could not eat because they would have an uh, effect on the medication that I was taking. That has to be something that plays into what the consortium will end up recommending. Mm -hmm. What the consortium uh, found through this study is that about 84% of the patients experience fatigue, and then mentioning mouth sores, we know that over 12% experience that. So it really um, affects what you put into your body or what you choose not to eat at all. What we found is that people that uh, experienced fatigue um, were making their own meals, and so they didn't have the energy to wait uh, for a meal to be cooked, and so they went without. So further inducing the fatigue. So then what happens? They um, don't have the energy to attend an event or a family function, and they become isolated. So um, what we hope is that improving nutrition will improve um, their experience, their life uh, quality, so that they can stay engaged in family events and in the community. I suspect that there are different levels of nutritional inadequacy based on the kind of treatment and the cancer involved, right? 
I mean, so let's say you had cancer of the pancreas and you're getting chemotherapy and you're getting radiation to your abdominal wall. Nutritional issues are, would be greater for someone like that as opposed to a, a lymphoma patient where the, the uh, chemotherapy is, is much more benign. That's right, and I think we have the pleasure of working with our, you know, expert colleagues across Mayo Clinic to understand the medical side of the nutritional needs of the patient as well as the social elements that Terry was mentioning in terms of, you know, I just don't feel good enough to make any kind of meal, whatever it is that I should be eating. Is there a way that you can objectively measure whether or not the patient's nutrition is adequate? There are. There are. Um, Equations that I probably learned in medical school but don't have at my fingertips anymore. <laughs> Look, please don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> to think through what are the, the, what's the basal, basal metabolic rate, what are the nutritional needs for somebody that's undergoing the stress of a disease and also a treatment. And um, our dietitians, our nutrition experts can figure out, you know, based on all of those different parameters, not only how many calories should an individual take in, but what should those calories be con- cons- composed of, excuse me, um, with respect to you know sugars and proteins and, and uh, fats and, and all of those different elements. Nutrition for Cancer Patients. We are with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh and operations administrator and a member of the Cancer Nutrition Consortium's Board of Directors. Terry McJoint, time for a short break, but we got a myth or matter of fact when we come back. That's right. Myth or matter of fact, all patients undergoing cancer treatment should be taking vitamins and supplements. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking about cancer nutrition with a member of the Board of Directors of the Cancer Nutrition Consortium, Ms. Terry McJoint, and also gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Limberg. Time for Mither Matter of Fact. All right, here we go. Myth or matter of fact, all patients undergoing cancer treatments should be taking vitamins and supplements. Dr. Limberg, are you going to take that one? I'd be happy to, Tracy. So I, I do think that there um, are advantages to some uh, vitamins and supplements, but I, I don't think all patients necessarily need to follow that approach. The, the best advice we could give our patients is to make sure that your clinicians, your physician and care team are aware of what you're taking. So please don't be afraid to tell us about what supplements you may or may not be using because they can have positive effects, but they may also interact with some of the other medications that we're prescribing. Do you ever remember recommending to a patient that they take a multivitamin or take a specific supplement? Absolutely. Um, And I spend a lot of my career um, trying to prevent cancer as well, Tom. And in that context, there are some very uh, powerful, potent uh, supplements, vitamins that seem to have cancer preventive effects. So I think in the right context, there may be different uses for vitamins and supplements than there may be in the chemotherapy, radiation therapy patient. Now, wait a minute. I want to follow up on that. He said that maybe there was something that we could take to prevent cancer. Is that what I heard you say? <laughs> so there's a field of science called chemo prevention, uh, which deals with how can we prevent the disease before it becomes invasive. Cells in the body become abnormal, sometimes for triggers that we can understand, like cigarette smoking, sometimes for reasons that we, we haven't figured out yet. Sure. But there are um, things like vitamin D, uh, selenium, calcium in some studies have been shown to reduce the incidence of various types of cancers, at least in animal mod- animal models, and there are some human data to support those uh, hmm. preventive 
potential effects anyway. At this point, there's not a blanket recommendation to take vitamins and supplements to prevent cancer, but we're working on it. All right. That's what I needed to know because you don't take any. (laughs) I I don't take vitamins and supplements to prevent cancer. Okay. Got it. Terry, tell us who is involved in the Cancer Nutrition Consortium because that's what we want to learn more about. Thanks, Tracy. Yeah, this was actually um, an initiative by Dr. Bruce Moskowitz. He's the uh, founder of the effort, and he really struggled um, with his patients that were undergoing chemotherapy and radiation therapy uh, with nutrition. And so he reached out to seven of the world's leading cancer centers to see if uh, we could come together uh, to conduct a research study uh, to develop some measures to help these patients. What did the research find? The research included over 1,200 people. Um, we understand that the um, the largest factor of um, cancer treatment is significant fatigue. Next is comp- uh, constipation, poor appetite, um, reflux, indigestion, just a myriad of uh, symptoms that really affect the quality of life for our patients. Dr. Moskowitz spearheaded this effort through the Bruce Moskowitz and um, Bruce and Marcia Moskowitz Foundation. It includes participation from the New York University Cancer Center, Dana Farber, the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center and jo- at John Hopkins, the University of Chicago, of course, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, and Cedar sinai along with Roswell Park. So a large group of world-leading cancer centers. Jeremy Jacobs, who happens to be the chairman and CEO of Delaware North, who is also the owner of the Boston Bruins, <laughs> provided a portion of um, support through food service. He uh, supports through the hospitality service. So did through this effort, did you come up with just recommendations? Or there, there's recipes, right? Over 200 recipes on the website. And then uh, our partnership with Hormel... Um, was a great success. We have uh, over-the-counter meals that are very convenient for patients. Um, You can actually have them at room temperature, which makes it easy for patients that have multiple appointments or they're traveling, and then um, shakes and some other products online. You said over-the-counter meals, sorry. Uh, um, You mean you you go to the store, what do you look for that says, you know, you're a cancer patient this is what you ought to be eating. It's Vital Cuisine, and vital. you can get them okay. online today. Um, I think there's five. And the next stage of our project is to uh, focus on pediatric and geriatric patients. So there will be more specific meals coming for those particular groups. And now I'm such a junkie for recipes. Did you yeah. say that there's recipes online so you can actually go and find recipes that are great for cancer patients? Yes, and these recipes were developed by uh, master chefs from the Culinary Institute in New York, and they are phenomenal. Um, I enjoy them. They have a, I'm just going to share this, they have a chocolate pudding that's made with avocado, <laughs> and it tastes just like chocolate pudding. It's phenomenal. Some of their but, recipes, but the reason why it's good then is because it's sneaky, because you're getting nutrition in with the chocolate pudding. Yes, and you don't even know it. That's good. You don't taste the avocado. You just taste the pudding. <laughs> well, I How love avocado, but uh, having more nutritious chocolate pudding, I'm always on board yeah, with that. Yep. Yeah. Th- these recipes, Master Chefs, um, and you've got 200 recipes, and you mentioned that they're on your website, but we, we've got to know where's your website. The website is cancernutrition.org. 
So what's next for this Cancer Nutrition Consortium? Do you have more work yet to do? It is. We really want to become a solid resource for uh, cancer patients. And so this is a, our website is a great resource for patients to ask questions, get answers. What we found early on is that there were either lacking uh, information for nutrition or conflicting information. So we brought all that together as a solid resource for our patients. And our next step, we're hoping to develop future studies um, in geriatric and pediatric patients and then develop recipes uh, specifically for those age groups. When you asked the master chefs to come up with some recipes, what were the guidelines that you gave them? What did you say you really wanted? Um, well, we, um, as Dr. Lindbergh mentioned, some of our patients react to strong aroma. Um, so we had to develop recipes that had low aroma, were quick uh, to make. In the recipes, we wanted to make at least four servings at a time, and they had a limit of seven servings, uh, I'm sorry, seven ingredients, and it had to be easily purchased ingredients. Okay, so nothing too outlandish. Correct. We wanted simple ingredients that were easy to make. We found that over 53% of our patients were um, creating the meals themselves. And um, the other 20% was a spouse or a, a family member. Dr. Lindbergh, have you been able to uh, use this as you help treat patients? It has, and I, I think this is a tremendous resource, and I think it will continue to grow, as Terry pointed out. You know, sometimes the simple things have the biggest impact, and so being able to allow cancer patients to, to live a more normal life, um, not only to take better care of their health, but to just do the things that they wanted to do, would like to continue to do even while they're undergoing treatment, like preparing a meal or at least sharing a meal with family members and, and friends, uh, I think it's just, it can't be overemphasized. So just want to say thank you to Terry for making the connection for our cancer center and also to all of the supporters who have um, participated in this study. Terry, wonderful work. A couple of things that you mentioned that uh, I want to make sure our listeners hear, and that is there are over-the-counter meals available for patients who are undergoing cancer treatment, and they are called Vital Cuisine. And your website is cancernutrition.org. Correct. All right. Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh. Mayo Clinic Operations Administrator and a member of the Board of Directors of the Cancer Nutrition Consortium, Terry McJoint. Thanks so much for being with us, both of you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear the story of how a devastating injury inspired one man's career. And later on the program, we'll learn about the latest in stroke treatment interventions. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer, or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute, the annual pap test to screen for cervical cancer. In the 90s, research changed how often women should get a pap test. There was good evidence that screening at three-year intervals with a pap was equivalent in terms of protection to an annual pap exam. Dr. Kathy McLaughlin says then, about 10 years ago, the ability to add an HPV or human papillomavirus test to the pap was an option. Why does testing for HPV matter? HPV we now recognize as the cause of 99% 
plus of cervical cancer changes in cases. The combination PAP-HPV test looks for the virus and changes in the cells of the cervix. It can be done at five-year intervals if both are normal. If HPV is not present, then that patient would be at very low, almost zero risk. But if it is present, they are at increased risk. In that case, you may need more frequent pap tests or even a biopsy. Cervical cancer is curable if caught early, and that makes screening important for all women. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, in the summer of 2005, Peter Gron had just graduated from high school and was having a ball on a hot summer day at the lake with his friends. Now, Peter was planning to head to college that fall to play basketball and major in biology. Those plans, unfortunately, changed in an instant. A tragic accident that day at the lake would change Peter's life forever. Now here to share his personal story, how his accident inspired him to pursue a career in research, is Dr. Peter Gron. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gron. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you both for uh, inviting me here. I'm very excited to share my story. Yeah, so Dr. Gron, you had just graduated from high school. You Correct. were you were going to go to college. Where were you headed? I was headed to uh, Minnesota State University in Moorhead. And you were going to play basketball. And yeah, I was going to walk on and... Uh, probably redshirt my freshman year and then pursue a degree in biology with the hope to go on to physical therapy school. And you had obviously just graduated, so it was time for a little celebration. Yeah, I was having some fun with uh, some friends, hot summer day on uh, Lake in local or rural Minnesota, uh, Green Lake and Spicer. And uh, I, I made a few uh, foolish mistakes with consuming alcohol underage. And uh, we were throwing a football around and it was a nice day and I decided to run down the dock and Dove into the lake and uh, the lake was shallow. The dock was pretty high up off the water. It was a it was a hot, dry summer, so the water was pretty shallow, um, only two feet deep. And I hit the bottom, full force, top of my head, and shattered my fifth cervical vertebrae. Uh, broke my collarbone and a few ribs. Dislocated a shoulder and wow. uh, was floating upside down or face down in the water. For it felt like an eternity, but it was only probably a few seconds before you didn't my lose consciousness. No, no, I stayed awake, which. But you couldn't move. Good and, good and bad, I guess. Yeah. You couldn't move, though. No, no, I couldn't move. Uh, spi- so spinal shock initially hit, and so I couldn't move anything. My upper my upper arms, my lower legs, nothing. So, um, yeah, I, I laid there face down, just trying to hold my breath. And then uh, I could hear my friends coming down the dock. I could hear the dock rumbling through the water. So I knew I, knew I only had to, to wait a few more seconds. And then they flipped me over, and I told them I couldn't move anything. Uh, they called for help. Luckily, there was a, param- a paramedic just right next door vacationing at the cabin next to us, so he heard the call through his uh, his pager, and so he ran over. So it was really only maybe a couple minutes before there was medical care on, on site, so I actually got really lucky in that way. Yeah, well, there's really not much they could do at that point other than and try to keep you from damaging your spinal cord further, yeah, but it yeah, sounds right. like uh, it had been pretty severely damaged with the accident. Yeah, so uh, I suffered... A fifth cervical vertebrae, Asia B. So I have sensory function below my injury, but no motor function. So I can't. I'm a motor complete quadriplegic, so I can't move my hands or uh, some of the muscles in my uh, in my arms. Uh, trunk instability and then lower leg paralysis or leg paralysis. Wow. How long did it take from when you went then to the hospital? The the ambulance came, picked me up at the dock, and uh, transported me to an open field area where. A helicopter transported me then to uh, St. Cloud Hospital, 
and I underwent uh, spinal traction where they hang weights off. They screw uh, cables into your head, hang weights off the bed to uh, stretch your, your spinal column back out. I was in spinal traction for two days, and then I underwent surgery, uh, spinal fusion of my fourth, fifth, and sixth cervical vertebrae. That's that's so that you can stabilize the spine. Yeah, so it correct. it it's the, the cord's not going to get no, any so, It's so, not to repair the cord, right. but it's to stabilize the spine. So yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I mean, the damage had been done. They did try a few interventions to try to decrease the amount of swelling. I was given corticosteroids, but uh, from from that point on, it's pretty much just wait and hope and try to do therapy and see what you can regain based on just conventional physical therapy. So. I was in St. Cloud for two weeks in the acute rehab setting, and then I was transported by ambulance to uh, Sister Kenny, Abbott Northwestern Hospital. Oh, yeah. I was there um, for two and a half to three months with a halo, so a full, uh, full neck brace system. And then I, from there I went to Courage Center mm-hmm. in Golden Valley, Minnesota, and I was in an inpatient center there for another 10 months, or no, eight, sorry, eight months, so 10 months total. And then I transitioned back home for two months and then went to college in southwest Minnesota State. So you were already heading off in a direction of medicine. So uh, you were going to study biology up at Moorhead. You had that plan. Mm-hmm. And then you decided to pers- to actually continue that direction but pursue a life in, of medicine. Yeah. So um, throughout the whole rehab setting, I had a lot of questions for my doctors, as you would expect. Uh, a lot of them tried to give me some straightforward answers and also just basically told me that uh, there's really no cure and we don't really know how to fix this, which was extremely frustrating, but it also sparked a, a bit of curiosity in my mind of um, why the spinal cord can't be manipulated to try to regain some function. And, and why uh, it doesn't repair itself, why right, it doesn't right, grow back together. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so from, from that, uh, I really headed down the path of if nobody else knows, there's got to be careers out there in looking at this. So research career interests me because I'm interested in this field. And you're motivated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially motivated. Yeah. And so it, uh, it's kind of funny. I, I put that kind of to the back of my mind when I went to college. I, I wanted to go into biology, but it, um, my therapist had told me maybe you should pursue a, like a, a doctorate in research when I was in my rehab. And I thought, man, that's a lot of school. Like, I don't ever want to go to that much school. I didn't like school that much. And uh, so I kind of put it to the back of my mind. And then my, I think it was the end of my junior year, I attended a, a foundation event. The Peter Morton to Cure, uh, to Cure Paralysis Foundation had an event in Minneapolis. And uh, Dr. Anthony Windebank from Mayo presented there oh, on yeah. spinal cord research. Mm-hmm. And I attended it just, my mom wanted to go. And I was like, sure, let's check this out. So my, my girlfriend, now my wife, and my mom and I went. And uh, attended this event, and I got to talking with Tony, and um, I just was really interested in what they were doing. And he's an incredible person; like he's very, very warm, very friendly to talk to. Got back to college, sent him a few emails, and he said, "Like, why don't you kind of come come to Mayo for a year and try to do some research and see what you think about the field?" And I just fell in love with it from that point on. I applied to uh, the PhD program here, and things went from there. So, what are you working on now? So now we're working on we have we have a couple different projects going on within uh, Kendall Lee's neural engineering lab and then also Kristen Zhao who directs the art lab through PM and uh, through physical medicine and rehab. So this collaborative project we're working with uh, Reggie Edgerton out of UCLA to to implant 
electrical stimulators on the spinal cords of people with paralysis and to try to uh, try to enable some functions that they've lost due to their spinal cord injury. Yeah, we recently had Dr. Zhao and Dr. Lee on telling us about yeah, that. Yeah, so, yeah, it, so you're part of that team. Yeah, it's really exciting work that we're doing. Uh, we've had one patient show some significant gains with stimulation. Uh, we're continuing the trial. And then we also, uh, within Kendall Lee's lab, um, working with another investigator, Igor Lavrov, we have some really exciting animal work going on as well. So preclinical Trying to understand how epidural stimulation is working in these patients, we have to go back into the lab and try to investigate this in uh, preclinical models to, to really nail down how this therapy can be optimized. Gosh, there's hope, isn't there? I mean, you got to be really excited about that. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I'm, I, the, the funnest part about it for me is not like the selfish aspect of, well, this could help me down the road, but just seeing the gains that it makes in our current patients, is it's really fun. It's been 12 years since your accident. So yeah, what's it was, life it was like August now? 2005, so almost 12 years, yeah. yeah. Uh, life is crazy. With work, it's fun. And then uh, my wife and I, we have two kids. Zoe is five. Reichen is going to be two in June. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, a boy and a girl. And <laughs> so things are fun and crazy at work, and then I get home, and they're even crazier. Wow, it's wild. Well, yeah. I'm wonderful, and we're so happy for you. And keep up the good work, because it's nothing short of, of exciting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. From spinal cord injury to Ph.D. to Mayo Clinic researcher, Dr. Peter Gron. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Ben Brown joins us from Mayo Clinic, Florida, to discuss stroke interventions. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, as you know, a stroke happens when the blood supply to a part of your brain is interrupted or severely reduced, and that deprives the brain cells of oxygen and nutrients. And within minutes, unfortunately, your brain cells begin to die. So... Prompt treatment is absolutely critical to minimizing damage to the brain. And that, if you can do that, can prevent or minimize the complications of a stroke. The good news is that new interventions are being used to treat strokes, and many fewer Americans die of stroke now than even 10 years ago. And you know, sometimes a stroke can be reversed. The blood supply can actually be restored before the brain cells die. Of course, that's a good thing. It means no complications or fewer complications and no long-term loss of function. Joining us on the phone today to talk about stroke treatment is endovascular surgeon Dr. Ben Brown from Mayo Clinic, Florida. Hey, Dr. Brown, good to have you on the program. So it says you have a couple of titles here. It says you're an endovascular surgeon and a neurosurgeon. So you're both? Yes, sir. So um, endovascular means doing procedures from inside the blood vessel, and that takes a little extra work uh, and training to, to be able to do that step subset of procedures, but radiologists, neurosurgeons, and neurologists can get into this line of work, but I also do the traditional open surgeries as well. So you're a brain surgeon, and you're an inside-the-blood-vessel surgeon. Yes, sir. Correct. <laughs> Let's talk about stroke a minute. We know that there are a couple of different types. Explain those to us, if you would. Right. So as you mentioned earlier, stroke in its most basic form is a lack of blood, or a lack of oxygen to a part of the brain. Um, that can happen in two ways. One, a blood vessel can be blocked. That's called an ischemic stroke. And then a blood vessel can open up and you can have bleeding into the brain itself, and that also deprives the brain of oxygen. That's also a stroke, but it's called a hemorrhagic stroke or a bleeding stroke. The first time much more common than the second, the first kind, correct? 
That's correct. About 800,000 or so ischemic strokes occur yearly in the United States. I would imagine the hemorrhagic ones are much more serious. They both can be very serious. You know, I, I um, you know, I, I think both uh, have some of the similar warning signs, and and the important thing is recognizing those and and getting to the hospital because both can have you know serious consequences. What are the warning signs? Yeah, it never hurts to go over these time That's and right. time again. Sure, sure. So an easy mnemonic is FAST, F-A-S-T. So any face numbness or weakness, arm numbness or weakness, or speech changes, the inability to produce speech or the inability to understand speech that comes on suddenly, then T is time. Time is of the essence, and you or someone with you needs to call 911 immediately because the, the best thing you can do for yourself at that point is get to uh, medical care as soon as possible. Is there a treatment difference, or what is the treatment difference between ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes? There, there are um, differences. The, the treatment for ischemic stroke, the one where an artery is blocked, <clears throat> is primarily based on opening up that blood vessel through a medication to dissolve a blockage or by a device that pulls the clot out. Um, For hemorrhagic stroke, the care is focused on stopping the blood vessel that has opened up uh, and preventing it from opening up again in the future. So how do you tell when someone comes in and they have loss of sensation or part of their body is paralyzed, how do you know that it in fact is a stroke and which kind it is? Yeah, some of it can be the history of the patient, meaning the bleeding strokes tend to present with a sudden severe headache, where the ischemic strokes don't have that much, you know, generally speaking, that much of a headache. But we really can't tell for sure until we get a CT scan. That's the fastest and most readily available uh, test. And so if you go into an emergency room with these types of symptoms, a CT scan will be the first to, to sort out whether it's the ischemic side or the hemorrhagic side of stroke. And how much time do you have? I mean, ideally, you want a patient to get to your facility or a similar type facility. Uh, how quickly after a stroke so you can potentially reverse it or potentially treat it? Right. So for the hemorrhagic side, it's just as soon as possible. There aren't any uh, restrictions and the certain medications or techniques we can necessarily use based on time for the hemorrhagic side. It's just the sooner the better. For the ischemic side, where a blood vessel is blocked, which is the more common type of stroke, um, there's cutoffs. So by about four and a half hours from the time, the first moment of symptoms, um, we're not typically uh, allowed to give the medication called TPA, which is a clot-busting medication. Um, The reason that is is because that that medication can... um, can cause bleeding, and if if you're out longer than four and a half hours, there may be damage to some areas of the brain that could make the blood vessels in that region weak, and then giving the medication could turn it into a bleeding type of stroke. So we're limited by the amount of time. Um, And then this newer technique, which was really sort of proven to be effective by research in the early 2015, so it's a relatively new treatment. That has sort of extended the time window out to six hours when you're talking about sort of just general guidelines. But we have other ways that even longer than that, eight hours, ten hours, we sometimes can apply that technology 
Um, it varies case by case because everyone's blood supply is different. Everyone's brain is hanging on longer or shorter just depending on the way their blood vessels are wired. But time, in, in the end, what's important is just the quicker, the better for all types of stress. So you've got this clot buster medication, and you can use that up to four and a half hours. And then you talk about this new technique. Explain that to us, can you? Yes, sir. So that involves um, going through the artery in the leg, the femoral artery, with a catheter, a small tube. And we guide that catheter up through the body using x-rays to help guide us through the body all the way up into the brain, and then out through the fine blood vessels of the head and neck into the brain, all the way to where the blockage occurs. And then there's two things we can do. The most common way, the way that was really proven by the studies in 2015, is to deploy a stent uh, inside the, the blockage. So we open that stent, and so it expands inside the blood vessel and sort of interdigitates with that thrombus or that blockage, and then the stent is still connected to a little wire, and we simply pull the whole contraption out, and hopefully those stent tines have latched on strong enough to that thrombus that everything comes out together. Very similar to what they do for a heart attack. Similar, uh, although, you know, it's not exactly my area, but I think for the most part, the stent is opened and left there in the heart oftentimes as opposed to snatching it out. And what about the future of the stroke interventions? For instance, will it always be a a CT scan that will help diagnose it? So right now, CT scan is our gold standard. There have been talk of putting CT scanners on ambulances because, again, time is brain. So if we can make that determination early on, maybe out in the field on the ambulance scanner, we can maybe administer that clot-busting medication at a person's residence. Other things, certain imaging like MRI and special CT perfusion are being developed to help identify how much of the brain has been lost and how much is at risk to help us expand how out, how much further from the onset of symptoms we can administer this treatment. And then these devices are being built smaller and more gentle on the blood vessels of the brain so that we can reach further and further out to smaller blood vessels in the brain. Right now, this is limited mostly to the main first branches of blood vessels inside the brain. Wow, terrific work. And important to remember, time is brain. So if you think (laughs) you're having a stroke, make sure you get there uh, hopefully within a few hours, four to six maximum. Endovascular surgeon, neurosurgeon, Dr. Ben Brown from the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Brown. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.